In just a moment, we'll be starting up uh, the top of page 58 in the notebook. Just a, just a moment. I want to introduce class tonight uh, similarly to what we did last week because um, I was hopeful that uh, kind of taking this section of Revelation and trying to see it as seven or seven, as four little snapshots, four photographs, four distinct images. Uh, and just to consider that each of these images uh, communicates a spiritual truth. And uh, in that sense, though they, they flow in the terms of the story of the vision, each of them says something very different about... Um, about what's going on, and especially uh, as we as we've been looking at the Book of Revelation, essentially um, as uh, God's word to His people in the first century, as they're facing have faced Roman persecution or about to face a greater level of persecution uh, within a few years, and He's comforting them. He's telling, t- uh, talking about the conflict that they're in. We've gotten to the point in the book, of course, where victory has uh, has been assured, where the enemies uh, of God's people have been dealt with and and taken out at the end of chapter 19 and in the beginning of verse uh, chapter 20. And, and so we have kind of these four images. And we've talked about the first two in just a moment. We're going to be uh, down on the third. But we have this first image of a thousand years. A thousand years, which, which speaks, as we've said many times, not of a linear length of time, but of something occurring perfectly, absolutely, completely. The number 1,000 being a number that speaks of completeness or absoluteness, uh, something that is full. And so that when we read about something happening, quote-unquote, for a thousand years, we're being told that, that that reality is complete and full. What happens for the 1,000 years um, is that Satan is bound uh, in the uh, bottomless pit, Uh, The church has been raised from the dead to reign with Christ for a thousand years, and the rest of the dead have remained dead during the thousand years. That, That little snapshot, just that snapshot of a thousand years, is speaking of the complete, the full, the absolute defeat of the dragon and his ability to deceive the nations any longer and oppress them through... Uh, the Roman power structure, the absolute defeat of Satan, and the complete victory of the church. So when we think of the thousand years, we're not thinking about time passing. We're not trying to put this in some sort of chronological order. We're, we're seeing this as an ima- a spiritual reality, a reality of the complete victory of God's people over her enemies and the complete defeat of the enemies of the church. What follows that is a very little brief, another little snapshot. It's a snapshot of a strange little war uh, that involves someone called Gog of Magog, or Gog and Magog, taken out of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And we saw that this is a, this little image, this little picture of this huge army coming together uh, and attacking the people of God and then just being destroyed before they can do anything and God just basically annihilating this kind of like what Justin was talking about, kind of a, a holy war where God just destroys the enemy without anybody doing anything. 
that this, this image of, of the battle of Gog and Magog based on Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a, is a snapshot or a picture of a, the assurance of a final victory. You remember in the way that the story unfolds, it's after the thousand years. We have to move beyond that image to the next picture. You have Satan released who does deceive the nations, brings forces against the church. And the image is basically a, a reassurance to the first century church and really to the church of all time that, okay, God has brought you through. God has given you victory here, but what does the future hold? And this little snapshot just says, you know what? No matter what comes your way, God will destroy those who come against his people. God will give them victory. God will give the church victory. No enemy, even the greatest army that could ever be imagined, bigger than any army that could ever be imagined, cannot destroy the people of God. And so we have that image. Um, following that, we come to what, where we are tonight um, with the... And I joked last week, this is not the gone with the wind judgment, but the great white throne judgment in uh, Revelation 20. A little levity is needed to keep everybody kind of awake. Let's just be honest, okay? But uh, well, we're going to be reading about that here in just a minute in verse 11. But um, So we're, we're told of the victory of the church over her enemy in the, at that present time future assurance of victory for the church no matter what enemy comes her way. And then we read of a... It's a very... This little snapshot is one you're very familiar with um, because it's a snapshot of a, of a judgment scene and, um, and it ends with a pretty horrific uh, sort of judgment against the ungodly. And... Just kind of want to, uh, at this point, we're wherever I said we were on your, on your notes, that uh, I guess whatever page that was, page 58. Many people who hold generally to the view that we have been presenting throughout this study, that essentially Revelation is written primarily to encourage first century Christians uh, to be faithful in the face of rising persecution against them at the hands of the Roman Empire. Uh, there are those who hold the view that we've been presenting in class, the same, very same view, who think that at this point in the story of Revelation, we've we jumped to the end of time. That from here on out, we've jumped to the end of time. That we've made a break uh, from what we've been talking about. Um, so that they would apply the great white throne judgment to the judgment at the end of time uh, when Jesus returns and then the new heaven and new earth in chapter 21 as being uh, heaven in eternity. Uh, and so they kind of, there are those who kind of hold the same view that we've been presenting, but at this point kind of make this switch. And um, there is another way of understanding this part of the book of Revelation that I believe is, uh, is more consistent with the view that we've been taking. Uh, and, and to remind ourselves that we are still in the middle of a vision. This is the third vision in the book of Revelation. We're just about, it ends in verse 8 here. The third vision ends. But we're in the midst of an apocalyptic vision. Uh, and we have consistently, throughout our study, interpreted these, these symbols and images in these visions uh, 
uh, in, a, in a symbolic way. And we're um, going to attempt to do that. Uh, you may disagree with me. That's absolutely fine. If we get done with this and uh, I haven't convinced you what I think, that's, I'm sure we're both going to be just fine with the Lord. So don't rest assured. That's all right. But I would like to present what I, what I think is, is being taught here. Um, because I, I think that we're still dealing in, in Revelation, that Revelation's chief concern is the first century issue. Now, we, we tend in our thinking, and partly because of the way passages have been read to us, uh, we tend to look at this part of Revelation in a different way. We're just kind of conditioned to. So I know I'm kind of asking you to kind of step out of that uh, view for a bit, just to consider another possibility. And, uh, and then you can, uh, seriously, you know, you can make your determination if, uh, well, what you think about that. But uh, as we take a few moments to kind of look at that uh, this evening, we've read about the complete victory of the church back here in the thousand years. And do you remember what happens? Uh, the, the church is raised up from the dead, and they sit on thrones with Christ for a thousand years. When we examine that text, we noted that uh, there are oftentimes in Scripture where, there is, uh, where resurrection is spoken of not, um, not connected with the final resurrection of the body in the end of time when Jesus returns, but resurrection is often used as an image or symbol of renewal or victory of God's people. Uh, when we studied this, we looked at Ezekiel 37, the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, where Israel is raised up from the dead. From a, from a boneyard, they are raised up, and, uh, and they, uh, they're back up on their feet, and they're, they're alive. And we recognize, of course, when we read Ezekiel 37, that we're not reading about a literal resurrection, but rather we're reading about the resurrection of the nation, the renewal of the people of Israel in their covenant with God. That's the way we looked at the resurrection here in chapter 20. Not that literally the people who had died at that point in the first or second centuries were at the, maybe at some time toward the end of the Roman Empire, were literally raised from the dead and set on thrones, but rather that that was an image that speaks of their renewal and their victory uh, and is, is to be understood uh, symbolically and spiritually, not as an actual or literal uh, resurrection. Um, but what we have not heard about since the, uh, the early part of this chapter is what about the rest of the dead? T- take a look at chapter 20, verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. If you go back to verse 4, you'll see that the the church, the faithful, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's the first resurrection. Um, And we're told in verse 6 that blessed and holy is the one who shares in that resurrection because over them the second death has no power. But they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. So the first resurrection is this essentially this symbolic resurrection of the church in her victory over her enemies, but we're not told what happened to the people, the other people. We're told in verse 5 that they're dead, that they stay dead for a thousand years, but it's implied at the end of verse 5 that after those thousand years, they too are going to somehow come to life. And when we get to chapter, um, later on in the chapter here at verse 11, 
I think what we are reading about here in verses 11 through 15 is, is the answer to what about the rest of the dead? What about those that did not participate in that first resurrection? We're told that they will. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And now the thousand years has ended in the sense that we've moved on to another snapshot. And, um, and this is what we read. So, as we read these verses 11 to 15, just by way of introduction, what I'm, what I'm proposing is that what we're reading about here is not a resurrection of all people at the end of time and a general judgment at the end of time. But what we're reading about here is, well, what about the rest of the people who died who served the beast? We know those who, had, who served the Lamb. They've been raised to reign with Christ for a thousand years. But what about the rest of the people who did not? What happened to the people who worshipped the beast who have died? So before reading, um, is it at least clear what I'm, uh, what I'm suggesting here before we read it? That what we're reading about here is not... And let me affirm and I'll do this many times as we work our way through here, the Bible affirms a resurrection, a literal resurrection at the end of time with the return of Jesus, glorified bodies, raised before God. So we're, we're certainly not saying that the Bible doesn't teach that, but what, I'm, what I am suggesting is that that's not what's being talked about here. That what we're reading about here is what happened to the rest of the dead who at this point have just been left out of the picture. Um, they didn't participate in that first resurrection. And, and the implication is, well, then the second death is going to be a problem for them, according to the earlier passage. So here, here's, here's what the text says. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This text doesn't specify that we're, or explicitly say that we're, that we're speaking here about the rest of the dead. But when you look at the passage, I think we're kind of led to that question. Because we have been, we have, we have, they've just kind of been left essentially hanging there at verse 5. The implication is we're going to find more. We're going to find out about them after the thousand years. And here we read of a resurrection. In keeping with the way we've looked at the earlier resurrection, uh, we're not reading here of a literal resurrection any more than the first resurrection in this chapter was an actual resurrection of people in the church. Neither is this. This is a vision. This is a. This is a. Uh, a wildly symbolic vision where you have, we've had these wars going on and people have died and those with the, with the, with the name of God on their forehead have, have been raised up uh, to reign for a thousand years. Well, what about the rest? Well, now they're raised up. 
And what happens to them? What happens to them is that they're judged according to what they've done. And the book of life is opened, and anyone whose name is not found in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. Normally, when we think of the book of life, we think about a big group of people coming up, the book of life is opened, and it's like the first per- I was going to point to, I better not point to anybody, but the first person comes up, sorry, your name's not here, you know, go to the left. Oh, oh yeah, your name's here, go to the right, you know. Uh, if you read this, that's how we think of the book of life, and let me, there's, I think there's good reason to think of it that way, but in this text, is there anything said about anybody about anybody going on to life. I think the implication of this text is that everyone who is raised up experiences the second death. That the book of life isn't opened in order to judge between... The the book of life is actually opened up just to demonstrate the fact that none of these people who have worshipped the beast have their name written there. And it justifies their end, which is the second death. Um, So that what we're reading here is... If we think of the first resurrection in the chapter being of the righteous, and they're raised on thrones to rule with Christ, now we're reading about the resurrection of the rest of the dead, and the books are open, and they're judged according to what they've done, and the book of life is opened, and those whose names are not found in it are thrown into the lake of fire. Um, I would my, uh, my assumption in this text, because of the absence of anything to the contrary, is that there's no talking here about anybody whose name was found in the book of life who had a different fate. There's no other fate mentioned in this text but the lake of fire. Um, in kind of getting, kind of getting caught up in, uh, in my explanation, I, did, I, I skipped over kind of the Old Testament parallel. So let me take a look and... Have us take a look at that. Back in Daniel chapter 7. How many times have we been in Daniel 7 over the last uh, few months? We should just about have it memorized. Daniel 7 completely parallels uh, in so many ways what John sees in the book of Revelation. And I'm just going to read a few verses. They're there in the outline or the notes. You can have them. You can take a look at it later. But... Do you remember in Daniel chapter 7, we have this fourth kingdom, the fourth empire. We have that 11th king who comes and persecutes the church. We, you know, we have essentially what we're reading about in the book of Revelation. And it ends with a judgment scene. Uh, it just, uh, here's, here's some of the imagery out of Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. As I looked, or chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, and, and notice the connections between Daniel 7 and Revelation 20. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. There's, there's the beginning, very similar to what we read. Skip down to verse 21. And this is, this is bringing it into the context of the persecution against the church. This 11th horn, we're not going to go back and redo this, but this is the, the persecuting power against the church in verse 21. 
As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And then verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Daniel, with slightly different words, um, is speaking uh, about the same situation. Uh, if we were to take more time and read more of the chapter, but we know from having read it before, he's talking about the beast. He's talking about the one who's persecuted the church. We see in both Revelation and Daniel 7 a throne. We see someone sitting on that throne. We see books being opened from that throne. And then we find judgment that is associated with fire and, uh, and the establishment of the kingdom of God and of the saints and the destruction of the enemies of God. Essentially, that's the Old Testament background, I think, of, of what we're reading here uh, with, with many, of the, uh, many similarities. Um, let me stop for a minute for questions, comments, um, clarifications, anything at all. Yes. Okay. I was going to be real smart and say you should ask your husband at home, but <laughs> I guess I won't. <laughs> That's the million-dollar question, and I, I appreciate it. And, I, and as I said before, because I kind of joke sometimes, I'm almost afraid of questions, but it's really good to ask questions. Um, for one, for clarification, because uh, as I've said many times, my first goal is to be understood. Then whether you agree or not, that's a secondary issue, and, and you, you know, we can kind of uh, uh, make our own determinations. But Ellen's basically saying, what does the first resurrection and the second resurrection have to do with, with the defeat of Rome? And I think that uh, in this battle, uh, in the battle that takes place in the book of Revelation, you have, from the very beginning, two groups of people. Um, they've been marked. Uh, there is a group of people that have the name of God uh, on their forehead. Uh, there are another. They've been sealed by God. God says those people belong to me, and He's going to protect them. And in, in one place, of course, it's the 144,000. It's the the people of God. You have another group of people in the Book of Revelation who have the mark or the name or the number of the beast on their forehead or on their on their arm. So you have two groups of people. One serving the lamb, one serving the beast. And at the end of Revelation, you have this massive, well, it's, it's, though it's just in a few verses, it's a pretty large-scale battle uh, with the rider on the white horse, Jesus, winning the battle. Uh, if you think of it in that terms of two great armies, and there's been a great clash, and in the course of this, uh, this uh, warfare, uh, people have died both people that have the, the name of God on their foreheads and people who have the name or the number of the beast. They're, they're pictured in, in chapter 20 as people who have, who have died, either as martyrs or those who've served the beast, just who may have died or, 
or in the image, in the image, are seen to be destroyed in the in the spiritual battle. Again, we're not talking about people who who have died here in actual warfare. We're not talking about two armies coming together and there literally being people who are dead. These are spiritual images that are talking about the spiritual battle between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And in this battle, because the imagery is that of battle, there are casualties. There there are people who've died in the battle, even though it's a spiritual battle. Uh, and and they're not uh, in, but in the in the image in the symbol they're portrayed as dead because of uh, a, a result of the of the warfare that's taken place. What happens in these two resurrections? In the first resurrection, in verses three, four, and five, we're told that the ones who are raised then are the ones who've been faithful to the Lamb. That that, that though, so that in the in the imagery of this this great battle that's taken place, the first resurrection is an image of the ultimate victory of the church, who's seen as if she's come back to life, coming, coming to life after this battle, and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. So the first resurrection is an image of the victory of the church and her renewal and her vindication as the people of God. We're told at that very point that the rest of the dead are, are still dead. And the only in the book of Revelation, there are only two groups of people. Uh, and so the rest of the dead are those who worship the beast. So what happens to them? Well, they, according to chapter 20, verse 5, they're going to be raised after the thousand years. And their resurrection takes place in this second uh, scene, the second judgment scene. But they are raised up, but they're raised up only to be thrown into the lake of fire and to be, to be destroyed from the face of God. And so I, in, in, the, in the world of the image, if you think of this as a spiritual war, not a, not a physical one, and not necessarily of literal, of literal deaths, but in the imagery of warfare, these casualties, and now the battle is over, and the first group comes up and sits on thrones for a thousand years and reigns with Christ, and then... The rest of the dead are raised, and they're judged by according to what they've done. Their names are not found in the book of life, and they're thrown into the lake of fire with the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. So they they meet their end or their doom. Yes? Oh, well, in, in, uh, in, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it mentions um, that after the end of the battle, that there will be enough wood left from the, war, from the implements of war that Israel won't have to chop firewood for seven years, and it will... <laughs> well, and also... There's not a whole lot of wood. <laughs> when you, if you, for those who want to kind of shoot this to like present day or future day, we're going to have some major conflagration in the Middle East. There's not a lot of wood in our weapons today. There might be some, but uh, uh, I, I, the imagery of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is of this massive battle taking place, and they surround the city of God, and then God just goes, poof, and they're gone. And it's like, 
How big was this army? How massive was this attack? It took them seven months just to bury the dead. They had enough wood left over from the bows and the, uh, you know, and, and whatever, that they, they didn't have to gather firewood for seven years in the land of Israel. What is that saying? Now, if you want to take, there are those who might want to take that literally, and they, they can make of that what they will. Um, but what that says to me is, it's indicating the vastness of the attack. A great attack, no matter how great of an attack, comes against the people of God. God will destroy it. And the fact that it takes seven months to bury them and seven years to burn up their, their bows and arrows is just saying, we're talking about a big army. The only way God's people survive this is God intervenes and God stops it. And that's the image of the assured victory, that no matter what size army comes. Um, because what happens in Ezekiel, if you go back to Ezekiel, um, I, I, there's, I would just say in Ezekiel there's no anticipation of a literal battle. The next chapter in Ezekiel is there in the holy city. Just like here, we're going to get to New Jerusalem. It, it, this, it follows the same storyline uh, as uh, really as Ezekiel. But Ezekiel 38 and 39, you have this battle. Ezekiel 40, where does, where does Ezekiel go? He goes up on a big hill and he sees Jerusalem. And it's not the Jerusalem he's ever seen before. It's a completely different Jerusalem. And, uh, and so I, you, I, that would be, to me, the... Uh, the uh, length of time it would take to bury is not an indication of a literal battle, but an indication of regardless of the size of any force that comes against the, the people of God, God will destroy them. And, uh, and, now, and as I've said, obviously there are other views of revelation of apocalyptic literature. And in exploring those, and if, if we... On, uh, uh, for those who really, really want to go, I'd, be, I'd love to not here on Wednesday, don't worry, not in Wednesday night class, but uh, I've kind of avoided going point by point into that way of looking at the book of Revelation because it would, it would just add like six or eight months to our study. And I'm, I'm holding on for dear life to trying to get done here uh, by June. So, uh, but if you have questions about that relating to a different view of Revelation, I'd be very happy to talk about uh, to talk about it and uh, to study about it because uh, um, and and to compare the the, the ways of looking. Um, one of the difficulties with that view, I'll just say, is the it moves back and forth between literal and figurative quite regularly. It's like it it parts are literal, parts are figurative. It kind of moves back and forth um, and and. One of the difficulties in Revelation is trying to maintain a consistent, uh, interpretive uh, kind of paradigm as you're working through the text. If you'll notice in this text, earth and sky flee. The, the, the world is gone. This world, why is the world gone? Well, we're going to see in just a minute uh, why this is taking place. But the world of the oppressor is gone. What's just about, what's right on the horizon in like the next verse. A new heaven and a new earth. Well, the first earth and the first earth have to pass away so the new heaven and the new earth can come. So earth and sky flee away at this judgment. And as we get to the new heaven and new earth, we'll, we'll speak about this in a little bit more detail, that essentially what we're being told here is that the world of the oppressor, the world where the church is persecuted, 
um, where the church is ostracized, that world is gone. That world is, is, is now taken out of the picture so that we can see uh, in, in, a, in this fourth image and snapshot who the church really is and, and what God really thinks of his people. Um, at this point, I think I'm just going to, rather than reiterate what I have, have said, let me just ask, is there any sense of clarity to what I've just said? Are we, um, is there an understanding at least that what, what, what we're trying to say is that the great white throne judgment is an, a snapshot or a picture of what's going to happen to the rest of the dead who worship the beast, who are raised only to experience the second death and uh, to be... In, in the story of Revelation, at this point on, everything bad and evil is gone uh, from this point on. Uh, we're, and we come into a completely new realm, a completely new world uh, that's described beginning in chapter 21. But any, any other thoughts or questions? And please feel free to, to do so. Yes. I th- yeah, I know. I, I think in this context, that's who it's, that's who is being addressed. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's what that's what I think. That it, that and let me just say, if you've never thought of this text from this vantage point, that's going to sound very strange. Because typically, at this point, we think we're at the end of time. And we're talking about the resurrection of everyone. But we're in, we're in the middle of a vision. <laughs> we're actually coming to the end of the vision in verse 8. This is a, a single vision of the final end of those that are oppressing the church and everyone's judgment relating to that reality. At least that's, that's how... That, that's the view that we're taking of this section of Scripture, that we're, we're still in that reality. We haven't moved from that. We haven't changed subjects. We're still dealing with what we've been dealing with from the very beginning of the book. And what we're told here in, in, in these two passages is uh, the end for those who have worshipped the Lamb and those who have worshipped the beast. Both of them are raised. Um, both of them are raised, one raised to reign, one raised to die. And I think, back to your question, Emmett, um, the one thing that, in looking at the great white throne judgment, is that there is no, indi- there's no specific indication in that text that anyone in that judgment passes to life. Now, I'm not saying that, that someone couldn't make an argument that that's implied, but in, in the passage, uh, everyone that is brought up in that passage, uh, the only thing that's mentioned is being thrown into the lake of fire. Nothing's being said about what happens to anyone else. Unless someone might want to make a case that the rest of them, you know, 
begin to take up residence here. Uh, that, I mean, I could see how that, that case could be made. But um, that is... Um, but to answer your question, that would, be, that would be the view I would take of the passage in terms of uh, who these people are. Anything else? Okay, let me close with this. Um, at this point in the story, at this judgment scene, Earth and sky have fled before the judgment of God. And um, if you haven't already read some of the, the notes and the text following in your handouts, starting on the background of the new heaven and new earth, I would highly recommend that you take some time to read those passages and think about that uh, as we move into chapter 21. Um, but what happens now, and this is a part of the book we're all kind of waiting for because we love it, <laughs> and we ought to, after all that we've read up until chapter 21 with bowls of wrath and everything else, um, and battles and uh, the, the evil that's been unleashed and the persecution against the people of God, we read of some of the most beautiful and reassuring images in all of Scripture. And they should always be that for us. And, and uh, in keeping with our view of Revelation up to this point, basically where we're going to be going here with, as this fourth, third vision comes to an end is uh, with the judgment of the evil and with the fleeing away of the sky and the earth, where does that leave the church? Where does that leave the church at this point? It's another snapshot. Each of these is a snapshot. The victory of the church reigning on thrones, that's a snapshot of their victory, their victory over Rome. It, it, that's, that's what that snapshot says. But we come to this fourth and final little snapshot that is like the best of all. Because it talks about what we in the church enjoy. A foretaste of now, by faith in a spiritual sense now, but one day ultimately experience uh, in, in having a relationship with God and being His people and living in His presence. Read through this section uh, as, as we start. It's, uh, it's such a beautiful piece of Scripture. And um, there's a whole new world about to dawn in chapter 21, verse 1. A whole new world. And I think we're ready for a new world after what we've been through. And uh, so we'll, we'll pick up with that. Um, next week, um, I'm going to be, uh, Lord willing, in Austin, uh, Texas for a seminar, sermon seminar I attend every year. And Emmett's going to be teaching. And um, I don't, I, he'll let you know. I don't know what he's teaching yet, but he will be teaching. And so uh, that's always good. So uh, look forward to that. And uh, let, let's close with prayer. Father, as we come to you this evening, we once again just thank you for your word. And we, we recognize, Father, our, our feebleness at times in fully comprehending uh, your scriptures. And especially, Father, we, we've just thought about this over and over again, just dealing with the kind of literature that is not part of our culture or our background to deal with apocalyptic imagery 
uh, it's not something we grew up with. It's not something that's kind of a shorthand for us. It's harder for us to pull it together. We, we recognize that in the first century, uh, it probably it did not have the same difficulties for your people. But we're grateful, Father, even for the challenge, because we come to some of the images of this book, and we are reminded over and over again of the way that you love your people and that you provide victory for your people and that you provide life for your people. And, Father, we're so grateful for those promises that we have begun to experience even now. And one, one day, Father, we'll experience in their fullness. Uh, and so as we move into this part of Revelation, Father, just fill our hearts with that sense of uh, blessing and peace and assurance and fellowship with you and the beauty of life in Christ. And we just give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.